Welcome to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to be a community of believers proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ through worship, discipleship, and service. Our prayer is that you are transformed by the word of God in the following message. And we trust you are using this podcast as a supplement to your participation in a gospel church near you. Let's now hear what God has for us. Well, another good morning to you, saints. If you have a Bible, meet me this morning in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew in chapter 2. I want to tag the text that we're looking at this morning with the title, The Heavens Declare the Humility of God. The Heavens Declare the Humility of God. This might sound familiar to you and yet off by at least a little bit. And that is because I am wordsmithing the great opening of the 19th Psalm, which begins, the heavens declare the glory of God. And I'm swapping that with the humility of God. I hope not in contradiction to God's word, but as a complement to what we see in God's word. This is what we're going to see here, that the very heavens that God created are testifying and pointing to the fact that we serve a humble God in Jesus Christ. So Matthew 2, 1 to 12 is our text this morning. Uh, We're so glad that the children are still in the gathering with us. Beloved children, pay attention to the fact that the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, inhabited a child's body. What an amazing thought that we have here in Matthew chapter 2. Let's read. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, with the psalmist, we say that your law is perfect reviving the soul. We have compared your word to every other book on the planet, and we can attest that there is nothing like your word. 
And it's not because these words in and of themselves are anything, but they point us to the one. Jesus Christ, your son, the savior of the world. We pray that he would open our eyes now by faith to see him in your word. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, I wonder if you know any provocateurs. Do you know anyone who you would describe as a provocateur? A provocateur is someone who destabilizes the status quo, someone who disturbs the peace, someone who knows that we humans are emotional beings, and oftentimes they'll play on our emotional strings because maybe they can take advantage of us if they get us up and working emotionally. Generally speaking, I think there are two types of provocateurs. There's someone we might describe as a friendly provocateur and someone we might describe as a malicious provocateur. A friendly provocateur is someone who's cordial, someone who's looking to spark engaging conversation, someone who wants to call your attention to maybe some details that you might have already overlooked as you considered the facts. Imagine that two of your friends are sitting at breakfast, they're at a restaurant, and you're late to breakfast. And every time you get together, they fight over who's better, the Northwestern Wildcats or the University of Illinois fighting Illini. Who's better? They've had this fight so many times that the server at the restaurant knows which side of the conversation they're on. And you show up late to breakfast, and as they are discussing you, you walk in, you don't even say hello, and you say, you know what? I think the Purdue Boilermakers are better than both of your teams. And in a moment, the tension is released. You have shown up and you have provoked an emotional response. You're a friendly provocateur trying to show them that, hey, let's just have a nice breakfast. We don't need a fight about something silly like that. A friendly provocateur. Well, how about the malicious provocateur? Do you know anyone like this? someone who really actually wants to divide you, someone who seems to love creating division in the midst of relationships. Maybe the same two people are sitting at breakfast and they're not talking about these things. And maybe they're just talking about the weather and going to church tomorrow. And all of a sudden you show up and you say, you know what? The Purdue Boilermakers are better than any football team in the world. And all of a sudden they're fighting against each other and you want to see them fight. This is a malicious provocateur. They're trying to provoke an emotional response in the people that they're with. Now, depending on which kind you know, they can either be a real pain in the neck or a real blessing to you because they help you examine life. Maybe the friendly provocateur is helping you consider the fact that there's a whole lot more to consider than you realized. Well, I doubt that you've ever met an infant who you would describe as a provocateur. Have you ever met an infant who you describe as a provocateur? We can't really describe them that way because infants don't have the language to be able to actually provoke you to an emotional response with their language. But with so many things, Jesus is the exception. Jesus, the infant, is the exception to this rule. Because Jesus in our text here this morning, he acts as a provocateur, not a friendly provocateur, not a malicious provocateur, a divine provocateur. And I think that Jesus remains so for us here today. 
And I don't think you actually need much convincing of this. Just reflect on your own life. On account of the fact that you follow Jesus, there are many people in your world who probably hate you on account of that. Maybe some of your neighbors. Maybe some of your coworkers. Strictly because you say you follow Jesus and his word, it provokes hatred in other people. Not everyone, but in some people. You also know that the presence of Christ in you can also provoke such a profound love for another brother or sister in Christ. It's kind of bewildering. How is it that you can love someone you met three minutes ago simply knowing that they love Jesus? Isn't it what Jesus can do? He can provoke hatred. He can provoke love. This is the, this is the Jesus that we serve. And this is the Jesus who is here with us this morning. Now, in our text, he provokes extreme responses. And in particular, it's the coming of Christ that provokes these extreme reactions. It's the advent of Christ, the birth of Christ. And I think in this text, we discover a dynamic that characterizes all people for all time. This dynamic that we see in this text is not simply a dynamic that existed 2,000 years ago, but a dynamic that still exists here today. And here's what I think we'll see. That the advent of Christ provokes either anxiety or adoration. The advent, the coming of Christ provokes either anxiety or adoration. His advent, his birth did then, it does today, and it will in the future, especially at his Second advent, the coming of Jesus Christ. Matthew, the gospel writer, he's using a real story to draw a line in the sand early in his gospel. This is what Matthew is doing here. He's drawing a line in the sand and he looks at the audience. It's not written to you, but it's written for you. And he's asking you to say, which side of this line are you on? Are you on the side of anxiety or are you on the side of adoration? Now, please don't hear me addressing anxiety as a full-blown category. I'm talking specifically about the coming of Christ. Does it spark anxiety or adoration? I believe that our response to these things, and we have to identify it for ourselves, the way we respond to these things can teach us about where we stand with God here this morning, where we stand with Jesus, and hopefully it can help us move in the right direction. Well, in tracing a line through these verses, I have just two words for us this morning. I've already alluded to them clearly. Uh, I'll identify them for you. I hope they're helpful to you. First, we're just going to see the response of anxiety. And second, the response of adoration. That's the outline for our time here this morning. So in verses one to six, we have the response of anxiety. I hope you still have your Bibles open. Look again at verse one. Our story begins in the city of God in Jerusalem. And Matthew immediately introduces us to the two main characters in this story. Who are they? First, it's Herod, who is described as what? As the king. And secondly, it's the Magi. First main character, Herod. Second, the wise men or the Magi. I'll use those interchangeably. Think about the contrast of these two characters. Here's Herod, lowercase k, king of the Jews. This is who he is. Ideally speaking... Herod is supposed to be the ideal Jew. He's supposed to be a representative of the people of God. He's supposed to have a unique obedience to God and to his word. He's meant to be a picture of faithfulness. And according to Deuteronomy 17, 
the king of the Jews was supposed to take his pen and write by hand the word of God. Why? Because they didn't have the printing press? Yes, in part, but also so that the word of God would go from his hand into his heart. A king was supposed to write the whole word of God that he had by hand so that he would be a doer of it. That's the first character. Second character, the ultimate outsiders. The magi as a group, they represent the ultimate outsiders. Ultimate insider, Herod, ultimate outsiders, the wise men. Why? They're non-Jews. They come from the east. They seem to be wrapped up in some kind of dicey astrological games here. I mean, these guys are the people you look at in your life and you say, oh, I've given up on them. They will never come to love Jesus. That's the kind of people we have in this text. We couldn't have a greater contrast here at the beginning of the story. Well, the wise men come from a long way to the city of God. And they have a very simple and direct question. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? That should already arrest us. Why? Non-Jews are coming to look for the king of the Jews. Remember chapter 1, the genealogy. We already see that the gospel of Matthew has a global aim to it. So when Jesus tells us to go into all nations in Matthew 28, he's not developing a new idea. Even here at the beginning of the gospel, the blessing of Jesus is being recognized by all nations. Where is he who has been king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose. Now what's happening here with this star? What kind of star are we dealing with here? Has, has a star ever guided any of you? Any hands? This isn't really a common experience for us. What's happening here with this star? Well, there's at least a half dozen real explanations of what's happening here. Here's my answer. It might not be sufficient for you. It might bother you in that it's incomplete. But I think that quite simply, there's a supernatural phenomenon characterized by light, guiding the wise men to Jesus. That might not be sufficient for you. You might want some sort of scientific explanation about what's happening here with the star. I don't know what's happening here. All I know is that something supernatural is happening to point to where the king of the Jews has been born. Now, I'm not opposed to trying to explain this in sort of natural terms. God often uses natural ways to guide his people. But here's the point. If you can't accept that something supernatural is happening here, you can't actually even make it to this point in the gospel. We've already seen a virgin conception and a virgin birth. We've already seen a divine revelation to Joseph in a dream. So if you're opposed to the supernatural, then we don't even make it to Matthew 2 in this gospel. So we shouldn't have any, any doubt or any issue with saying that this is a supernatural act. The heavens are speaking clearly. With crystal clarity? No. It gets them generally to the vicinity, but now they need to know exactly where to find the king. Their intent is stated plainly here too. We have come to do what? To worship the king of the Jews. They didn't come to just interview him or find him or, you know, try to get his autograph. They came to worship, to adore him. Here we are to worship here we are to bow down. And then in verse 3, when Herod heard this, he was troubled. 
Do you notice that? He was troubled. They ask a simple question. Where's the key? He was born king of the Jews. And they were troubled. And there's double trouble, right? Double trouble. Not only Herod, but also all Jerusalem with him. Everyone was troubled by the fact that these magi come and they ask this simple question. The wise men, they're enthralled by the king of the Jews and the fake king of the Jews. He's anxious. He's troubled. Now, here's the question. Why? Why was Herod and why was all Jerusalem troubled at this simple question? I'm speculating here, but let me try a few things on. How about the fact that people don't like change? People don't like change, which is kind of sad because we are constantly changing as human beings. If you're not growing, if you're not changing, you're dying. People don't like a change in the status quo. And if there's a new king in town, then this means that something's about to change pretty drastically. That might be one reason why he's troubled. How about the fact that Jesus poses a threat to Herod? Imagine your sister's a fourth grade teacher and someone shows up to her school one day and she's the only fourth grade teacher at the local school and they say, where's the new fourth grade teacher? She's like, what do you mean? There's only one fourth grade teacher here and I'm her. To say that there's another fourth grade teacher would be a threat to her job security. So when they ask where's king of the Jews, Herod's looking at himself like, that means I don't have the job security that I once had. How about the fact that maybe if a king has been born, you don't have control of your life the way you thought you did. You don't sit on the throne of your life. You don't get to decide everything that happens in your life. To admit that there is a king would be to admit that we are subjects in the kingdom. I don't know why they're troubled, but they are troubled. They are anxious. And I wonder this morning, thinking about Jesus coming again, does it give you any anxiety? Does it give you any fear? Any worry? Well, the wise men knew that he was anxious. Maybe they didn't know he was anxious, but Matthew certainly knew he was anxious, and he told us he was troubled. So he gets going to figure things out. Now, there's a very small detail that I think is crucial here that we might easily miss. They come looking for what? Do they come looking for the Christ or do they come looking for the king? They come looking for the king. But what does Herod say? Where is the Christ to be born? Matthew doesn't even explain this. He just knows that to be king is to be Christ and that to be Christ is to be king. So every time we hear this verb Christ, Messiah, in the gospel, we need to have this royal idea on our minds. Well, maybe some of his trouble was from his ignorance. He didn't know where the king was to be born. So he calls a meeting. Herod calls a meeting. I don't know about you, but sometimes I really dislike, to put it softly, sitting in meetings. Because oftentimes I'm like, what's the purpose of this? What are we accomplishing by sitting here for an hour and talking? Sometimes it's good to just catch up. Other times it's like, is there a goal in mind? Do we, can we figure something out here? But that's not the case with this meeting. They have one question that they need to answer, Herod and the chief priests and the scribes. And it's this, where is Messiah to be born? Where is Christ to be born? Now, all of a sudden, when Herod is troubled, all of a sudden he becomes a theologian. He had very little concern for the word up until this point, but now he's like, let's go to Bible school. Let's figure out where Messiah is to be born. 
Everyone becomes a theologian when they feel that their life is either right now being upended or about to become upended. And here, Herod is no exception. So he gets everyone who he thinks can help sort out this question. He gets the religious elite. He gets the chief priests, the scribes, the Bible scholars, the PhDs, the D-mins. And he says, where is the king to be born? Now, the picture I had in mind was when there's a controversial catch on an NFL football field and all the refs come together to figure out, like, did he actually catch it? Was he out of bounds? Did the ball hit the ground? And there's like 39 people. It's like, do we really need this many people to make this call? But anyways, all 39 of them come in and now they've got someone in New York watching the game and all these people are trying to answer one question. Did he catch the ball? And all these people come together to answer, where is he to be born? And they come up with an answer. Their meeting was successful. A king, the Bible chapter you're looking for, you can, turn, you can scroll there on your phone, is Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. Now, notice something here. The star, which represents general revelation, general revelation being the creation itself, always depends on special revelation to be interpreted properly. I'll say that again because this is a crucial principle. General revelation always depends on special revelation to be interpreted properly. This is exactly how Psalm 19 goes, parenthetically. It starts with talking about how the heavens proclaim the glory of God, and then it moves to how the law of the Lord is perfect. Now, they come to the king. They say, this is where the ruler is going to be born. And according to Micah 5, he's a specific kind of ruler. What kind of ruler is he? He's a shepherd ruler, a shepherd ruler. Now, this detail is so important because this is the ideal leader in the kingdom of God. And you have to ask yourself, why is God so concerned that his ruler be like a shepherd? Here's the answer. It's because a shepherd leader is a reflection of God himself. God self-discloses himself as a shepherd. In as early as the book of Genesis, look at Genesis 48, 15. I think I have it on the screen. God, God says that, Uh, Jacob is blessing his sons and he blesses Joseph and says, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has what? Been my shepherd all my life long to this day. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil blessed the boys. First book of the Bible, God's already being described as a shepherd. Or how about Ezekiel 34, when God prophetically is denouncing all the false shepherds, the wolves, in fact, they're not acting like shepherds. And he says, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search out for my sheep and will seek after them. God is looking for a shepherd leader because it's a reflection of God himself. How about the most famous Psalm of all time? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Or the Lord Jesus later in the gospel of John, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So when Matthew hyperlinks to Micah chapter five, he's assuming that we have this shepherd idea in our minds. This is the kind of leader that God is looking for. Now, sadly, 
Most leaders are not like this, are they? This is an unusual type of leader. Compare this kind of leader with Herod himself. Would you describe Herod as a shepherd? I'd describe Herod as a hunter. I'd describe Herod as a wolf, barely in sheep's clothing. Herod is no shepherd, but this child who is to be born is a shepherd. Now, all of this is happening right here in the city of God in Jerusalem. They've anxiously got their answer. Micah chapter 5. This is where he is to be born. Now, beloved, it's easy to roast Herod, is it not? It's easy to say, that, that'd never be me. But is there any anxiety in you when you think about the coming of Christ? If you were there, would you be on edge thinking that maybe there's a child who actually is the king? What are we to do with this? Is he a threat to my autonomy? Is he a threat to everything that I hold dear in life? Maybe it was this anxiety that drove you here today. I'm anxious thinking about God and about the things of God, and you need some sort of answers. But the coming of Christ, the advent of Christ, it provokes on one hand anxiety. But that's only half the story. We need to look at the second half, which is adoration in verses 7 to 12. Adoration is the second response. And not far from the city of God, six miles south in Bethlehem, uh, where, where the city of David is described, this is where God was. We just saw this in the previous chapter. Emmanuel, God with us. And so, verse 7, Herod comes back to the wise men secretly, deceitfully, and he ascertains from the wise men when they saw the star. Okay, who, what, when, where, why, how? They know the where. They know he's going to be born in Bethlehem. That's where he's been. Now they're curious with when they saw the star. And so he commissions them to go. Verse 8, go, search diligently for the child, and when you find him, come back and get me. Now get this, why? That I may come and worship him. Do you see how Matthew is setting up these two contrasting characters? These wise men, the ultimate outsiders, really come to worship. Herod deceitfully, secretly ascertains when he was born, not because he actually wants to worship him. If your eyes drop down to 13, you'll see the real reason why he commissioned them. He wants to destroy the child. He doesn't want to worship Jesus. He wants to destroy Jesus. And he's going to go to large measures to try to ensure that this happens. These are worship wars. Some come to truly worship. Some deceitfully want to actually destroy the child. King Herod really believes that a king has been born. Why wouldn't he go himself? Why wouldn't Herod go down to Bethlehem? It's six miles. I mean, we got people in our city walking and running 26 this morning. Congratulations on making it here to church this morning. I know that was a difficult feat with the marathon. It's six miles south. And he won't go. And neither will the chief priests and the scribes. Are they going? There's an old saying that goes like this. The nearer the church, the further from God. Isn't this often the case? The nearer the church, the further from God. Those who are most familiar with religious things develop the hardest heart. One time they were full of wonder at the things of God. How on earth could he save a wretch like me? A few years later, 
He could never save that guy. Look at the mess he's made of his life. Wasn't that you? How have you forgotten that that was you just a few years ago? These people, the chief priests, the scribes, the king, they've gotten so comfortable, so complacent, so hardened that they will not walk six miles south to actually investigate if the king of the Jews has been born. We have to be on guard. I hope you love coming to church, but we need to be on guard that we don't just love sort of religious rituals, religious movement that's void of all love for God and for his people. Of all people, those who hold the word and the church and all these things in the highest view are most in danger of growing hardened to them. We need to be dependent on God to soften our hearts and to actually make us in awe of these things. Do you sit in church thinking you've got this all figured out and like there's nothing new under the sun and that you know everything about God? If that's you, beware, church. Be on guard that you do not develop a hardened heart to the things of God. The nearer the church, sad to say, the further from God. Familiarity breeds contempt. I think what the chief priests and the scribes have forgotten is that everything hinges on the love of God. Look what Gerhardus Voss says. He says, forgetting that everything hinges on the love of God is to de-religionize religion at its very core. If religion is just simply ascribing and prescribing to some sort of theological outline, and it's just something you cram in your head, then we're de-religionizing religion at its very core. Religion is meant to be saturated with the presence of God and the love of God. And when we lose these things, we lose Christianity at its core. This is a a perennial problem. And we need to be on guard about these things. Has the gospel grown cold on you? Has the gospel just become one more message in this busy sound of a bunch of other messages in your life? We need to be on guard because we too might be like King Herod and know where Christ is found and yet be sound asleep in our chair, not going to find him. So verse nine, they go and the star reappeared. And you're thinking to yourself, okay, you, you kind of dodged this one a few minutes ago. Are you going to take it on? No, I'm not going to try to re-explain it here. The star acts like their leader until it gets to the place, verse, verse 10. And when they see the star, we have an incredible reaction. What happens with the wise men here when they see the star? They rejoice. Is that what it says? No, it says they rejoice exceedingly. Is that actually what it says? No, it says they rejoice exceedingly with joy. No, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. What a verse. Is that an incredible verse or what? Here's Eric's paraphrase. Probably don't write this down because it's really bad. One of the happiest days of their lives. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Why? Was it because they loved the stars? Or was it because they found the one who made the stars? 
They rejoiced not because of the star itself, but because they met the one who, according to Psalm 147, has named every single star in the universe. Is that beautiful or what? That God not only didn't just throw you into the world and kind of let you do your thing, he didn't even throw a star into the universe and leave it to do its own thing. He names them. And here, in their presence, at this house, they see and they come to the Christ who is God over all. There's a famous quote from Abraham Kuyper that says this, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And here in Bethlehem, born in the body of a child, is he who created the stars. In verse 11, they go into the house. And they saw the child with his mother. And the child at this point, he's almost certainly closer to two years old than he is to a newborn baby. And they get to business on why they came. They came to worship. We've already seen one half of the equation. We've seen some people who are threatened and anxious and fearful of Jesus. And now we see people who are actually here to worship. So they fall down on their knees and on their faces and they worship Jesus, here we are to worship. Here we are to bow down. Here we are to say that you are our God. Friends, have we not sanitized the nativity scene? Do we have any details here that Jesus was in radiant swaddling cloths, glowing with divinity? Find me that verse. Find me the verse where it says that three magi appeared. Where? Show me. We have imported so many details to try to bring this to us. But the Bible's account is so much better. We don't know what Jesus is doing. If he's about two years old, imagine little Sophie Hertz is here. Just to kind of keep someone in mind. She just turned two years old. They come into the child. What was he doing? Was he glowing? We don't have that detail. How do we know if they were wearing headdresses, he wasn't playing with their headdresses as they bowed down to him. How do we know he wasn't laying there on the floor pulling on their beards as they bowed down and worshiped him? We have no right to say that just as much as we have no right to say he was glowing. How do we know he wasn't just feeding? How do we know Joseph wasn't just on the floor rolling around with him, playing with him, and had just given him back to Mary? We don't know any of these things, but what do we know? That these grown men, these magi, fall down in the presence of an infant. And they worshiped the child. Notice, they see Jesus and Mary, but they worshiped him. They worship Jesus. This is what his advent provokes. Now I wonder, does this move you in any way? Are you tempted to cry out, hallelujah? Are you tempted to cry out, thank you, Jesus, in the middle of this talk? It's more than welcome to do so. Are you provoked to worship? Are you provoked to anxiety? Now, this diagnosis, whether you're on one side of the sand or the other, it's not meant to be stationary. God's word is here this morning trying to move you into the camp of wholehearted worship. 
Now, the icing on the cake comes in verse 11. Where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. And so they open up their treasures. Their heart is set on the king of the Jews. Their heart is set on him who came to save his people from their sin. And they open their treasures and they offer him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, what did these guys know about this kid to move them to such an extreme act of generosity? They didn't give them their hand-me-downs from their, from their nephew that they just got. They give them gold and frankincense and myrrh. Maybe even this description is making you anxious. Like, we don't give kids these types of things. We give them his older brother's old clothes because they're going to grow out of them in a few years. We don't give them cash because they'll probably try to eat it. You know, like, we, this is what we, we don't do this with kids. Why are they giving him all of these things? Couldn't they have just brought a souvenir from the East and given it to the kid? Maybe he could have played with it. What moves them to offer them these precious gifts? But the fact that they knew that the one who they saw here was their king. There was nothing too expensive for them to pour out on Jesus. And beloved, they don't even know 99% of what we know about Jesus. Do they know about his life and his teaching? Do they know about how he healed blind men? How he raised Lazarus from the dead? Do they know any of these things? Do they know how he was going to teach them about the kingdom of God? With a sliver of knowledge about the king, they pour out their gifts on him. And what's keeping us from doing the same? If the Magi walked into Addison Street Community Church this morning, would they be comfortable here? Would they be comfortable with the way we worship? Or would they say, it seems like you guys have sanitized this thing. If they were up here bowing down in worship, laying on their faces, would we say, hey guys, glad you're into this whole Jesus thing. You're probably more comfortable at the Pentecostal church down the street. Or would they be comfortable here? It's worth thinking about, is it not? Lest we be accused of being the frozen chosen. Because I have a warning. If you're the frozen chosen, there is some likelihood that maybe there's more frozen in your life than chosen. If you're not growing, you're dying. And the king of the universe coming to inhabit the very globe that he made should provoke us to extravagant worship. If I'm ruffling some feathers, thanks be to God for his word. But I, again, I ask, would they be comfortable at Addison or would we ask them to just stop disrupting the service? Mary, did you know that wise men were going to show up unannounced at your door? Mary, were you worried that they might have tracked in a virus or a bug from wherever they traveled from? Mary, did, did you know what to do when they bowed down in front of your son? Mary, when they got down to worship Jesus, did you have to ask for them to make some room so that you could bow down and worship your son with them? Beloved, you're in the room. Are you bowing down before Jesus? 
Or are you, anxiously are you anxiously checking your phone because you don't know what to make of this situation? Are you here to worship? Or does all of this cause a strange amount of anxiety in your heart? This is what the coming of Jesus does. It draws out either worry or worship, anxiety or adoration. It's either troubling to you or it's the most tremendous thing you've ever heard of. How we feel about this coming of Jesus in Matthew chapter 2 will teach us a lot about how we would feel if Jesus returned today. Would you be elated? Would this be the best day of your life? Would you rejoice exceedingly with great joy? Or would you hide under this table because you're so afraid of the coming king? Those are the two responses that we have. And that's what's going to mark actually even his second coming. What did Jesus do with all this stuff that they gave him? I mean, the frankincense, it's probably this hardened resin, was probably a choking hazard to the kid. The gold probably weighed more than Jesus did himself. What is he supposed to do with all this? Speculation here, but Charles Spurgeon pointed out something to me this week that I found fascinating and compelling. It is probably these gifts that actually provide for Jesus and his parents in their exile in the next section. They're about to go into exile in Egypt. How are they going to provide for themselves? Who knows? Was it maybe not this gold and the frankincense and the myrrh that they used to actually survive in Egypt? It's an interesting thought, is it not? Whatever we say, it's a beautiful gift and it's a beautiful act of worship. Well, we need to wrap this thing up in verse 12. Uh, this is where the story ends. The wise men were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, so they departed to their own country by another way. Now, conservative estimates say that they traveled 200 miles to get to Jesus here in the first place. Bigger estimates are up to 900 miles that they walked in order to get to Jesus. No cars, no trains, no planes, no helicopters, no whatever. They walked hundreds of miles to see Jesus. So to leave by another way was actually to prolong their journey back. They've already made this incredible trek, and now they realize that actually the long way around is the safest way home. Is this an issue for them? I don't think so. They've just seen the one that their hearts long for. They came seeking the king of the Jews, and they left having seen the king of the world. They came seeking the king of the Jews, and they left having seen the king of the universe. Who's to say they didn't leave with exceeding and great joy the way they came? What would they have not given up? How far would they have not traveled in order to see Jesus? But here's one last question. Who's the hero in this story? I fear that I may have misled you this morning to make you think that the Magi are the heroes of this story. Certainly they shine, do they not? Would you walk hundreds of miles to see Jesus? But I fear that maybe we've mixed some things up. And the way we can actually answer this question, who's the hero in this story, is to ask one final question, and that's this. Who traveled further, the Magi or Jesus? Who traveled further? 
You say, well, the Magi might have traveled 900 miles. It seems like Jesus was just there since his birth. It doesn't seem like he traveled very far. Who traveled further? It seems like the wise men are the main character in this story. But what if we turn to 1 Kings 8 and we saw in Solomon's prayer that heaven cannot contain you, O God. Even the highest heaven cannot contain you. What if the one that they are worshiping traveled from glory to earth? What if their initiative was actually just a response to the fact that Jesus left heaven in order to actually initiate a relationship with them? Would that change the way we see this story? That actually the true hero in this story is not the wise men, no matter how great they shine, but King Jesus, who traveled from beyond heaven to be with his people? And did his travel stop in Bethlehem? Is this as far as he will go just to be born and walk around with the people? His whole life is a travelogue. His whole life is an extended journey. Where? To Jerusalem. Where the very thing that he's going to be crucified for is the very thing that the Magi called Jesus, right? What do they call him? King of the Jews. Find me that phrase again in the Gospel of Matthew. We're not going to see it until when? Until Matthew chapter 27. I invite you to turn to Matthew 27 so that you're not taking my word for this. We don't see this phrase that Jesus is called the King of the Jews until his crucifixion. Matthew 27 and verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And notice how they treat this king. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, not sincerely like the wise men, but out of mockery, they mocked him saying, hail, what? King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Some are so anxious about the king of the Jews that they will crucify him because they think that he's that much of a threat. Others, like the Magi, will bow down in adoration. Fear or faith? Anxiety or adoration? Worry or worship, what side of the line are you on? Is this it? Look at verse 37. And over his head, they put the description against him. No, that's not what it says. They put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. This was an accusation to them. How on earth could you be king of the Jews? And this is why he's crucified, because of the very way that the Magi identify him. Jesus is either a threat to everything you hold dear, or he's the single one you hold most dear. He's either a threat to everything you hold most dear, or he is the one you hold most dear. And his journey didn't end there. He went into a tomb for three days, but the king of life could not be contained by death. 
And he shows that he's not just the king of the Jews, but the king of the whole world by rising again from the dead. None of us were there for his first advent, but all of us are going to be involved in his second advent. I'm telling you right now, you will be involved in the second coming of Christ. How are you going to respond? With anxiety or with adoration? This question deserves special consideration from us here this morning. Don't settle for a hasty answer. Don't settle for an answer that hasn't received substantial reflection. I point out one last text from Revelation 16, which is one of the most sobering pictures of this. It's depicting the judgment of Christ. And here we have it in Revelation 16. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not catch this. They did not repent of their deeds. Even at Christ's second coming, there are going to be some who worship and some who are filled with anxiety and hatred toward him. I'm not making this up, but this is the way that people respond to the advent of Christ. But if you love his appearing, then I guarantee you by the authority of God that there is laid up for you a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award you on that day. That is the good news for those who love Jesus, that the righteous judge is going to set a, a, a crown on your head as an award for loving the one who has the biggest crown of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. Second coming of Christ. It provokes either anxiety or adoration. So beloved, what's keeping us from worship today? What's keeping us from bowing down before King Jesus, even here this morning. Thanks for listening to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. We hope you were encouraged by God's word. And for more info for joining us for a worship service, for taking your next steps with us, please visit ASCCChicago.org.